The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Every week, I'm bringing you a conversation with a Christian who is world-class at their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits, and how their faith influences their work. Today, you guys are going to love this conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's one of the world's leading experts on climate change and a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ. You may know Dr. Hayhoe's husband, Andrew Farley, a very popular pastor and author. And listen, there is zero doubt that Dr. Hayhoe is a world-class scientist. She was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people on Earth. She was named by Christianity Today as one of their 50 women to watch. And if you know her name, you probably know her from her wildly popular TED Talk on climate change that has more than 3 million views. She's a professor at Texas Tech University and the founder and CEO of Atmos, a consulting firm that works with municipalities and airports and other organizations to plan for the impending impact of climate change. Dr. Hayo and I sat down. We talked about why climate change and even our response to the COVID-19 crisis, how these things are pro-life issues that the church should deeply care about. We talked about how the, quote, expressed word of God's creation in the earth aligns with the written word of scripture. And we talked about how combating climate change can help us as the church provide food and clean water and safety to the world's most vulnerable populations. You guys are going to love this conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Dr. Hayhoe, thank you so much for joining me. This is a pleasure. I was sitting down at breakfast with my five-year-old and four-year-old this morning, and I'm like getting excited about the day, getting excited to talk to you. And I wanted to tell them about it, but I realized I have no idea how to talk to a five-year-old about, about climate change. This isn't something we talk about a lot in our household. So I'm curious. I'm sure you've been asked this question before. Can you help me out? Can you help our listeners out? How would you explain climate change to my five-year-old? Yes, I get that question quite a bit. And I'm a mom myself. So I've actually not just thought about it, but put it into practice. Yeah. So what I would say to a five-year-old is that by digging up and burning coal and gas and oil, we're producing heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. And just like, imagine if you were asleep at night and your mom or dad snuck into your room and put an extra heavy blanket on you, and you would wake up sweating saying, why did you do that? I don't need this blanket. In the same way, we're wrapping an extra blanket around our planet, and that's why it's getting hot. But the good news is that we can do all kinds of great things to take that blanket off. And some of them start right here at home. 
talking about what we're doing and why it matters, talking about how we can change what we do, whether it's reducing our food waste, eating more plants, figuring out how to get to school where we might walk or bike instead of driving, and talking to people about school at turning off the lights and recycling and what do you do with your food waste at school. There's a lot of great things that we can do even if we're five years old to make a difference. You've clearly answered that question before. That was very, very well said. All right. So, hey, today you're one of the world's, I would argue, one of the world's biggest proponents of the truth that science and religion can coexist, right? But your upbringing doesn't make it obvious that that's where you would land, right? I can't imagine that you always believed that. So I'm really curious if you can tell us a little bit about your story that led you to really be able to intellectually marry science and your faith as a Christian, maybe going back as far as your experience as a missionary child, like talk about that. Well, I can go back even a little further than that because there was a lot about my upbringing that introduced me to this idea. And for me, there never was a conflict from day one. So my grandmother had eight children and her degree was in science education. So part of her education of her children was appreciating nature, learning about nature, understanding this world that God has made. My dad became a science teacher, but he was also a teacher in our local church. And for him, the Bible was God's written word and creation was God's expressed word. And really, when you think about it this way, Jordan, if we as Christians truly believe that God created this incredible universe that we live in, then how could studying God's creation in any way contradict what we learn about God in the Bible? If we believe the same person authored both of them, they have to be consistent with each other. Now, I'm not naive. I know there's a lot of places where people don't think they are consistent, but isn't that because of our own limited understanding? We put on some very thick cultural glasses when we read the Bible. We make some really big assumptions that we know and understand exactly what was meant when it was written thousands of years ago. And in science, we're always learning more things. Some things stay firm, whether we've known them for 10 years or 200 years. Other things evolve over time as we learn more, as we study more, as we observe more. Yeah. Dr. Keller's written about this. We just had Tim Keller on the podcast a while back. He's big on this. Francis Collins has written a lot about this. But no, you're articulating this really eloquently. Let me ask you this. You said somewhere that, you know, as a Christian growing up in the church, you come to this point in your career where you decide, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be a real academic researcher. And you felt like telling people that was kind of like coming out of the closet. I'm curious if you can recall kind of one of those first instances where you told somebody, another Christ follower, maybe outside of your family, that, hey, yeah, I'm going to go be a scientist. And what the reaction to that was? Well, that's actually a little bit backwards because let me explain. Yeah, please. So first of all, I kind of grew up with the idea that, you know, with a science teacher dad, that science is the coolest thing you could possibly study. And my dad was well known in our church and beyond. I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren denomination for toting around giant slideshows of nebulas and galaxies (laughs) to show people the wonders of God's universe. So when people in my own faith community, you know, found out, they said, well, you know, what are you studying at university? And I said, physics and astronomy. 
astronomy. Everybody said, oh, of course, that's what you're studying because yeah. I expected that from my dad. So that was in no way a conflict for me growing up in Canada. And in fact, growing up Plymouth Brethren, I don't know if you're familiar with that denomination, but it really encourages individual study. So it's not a case where you show up, you sit in the pew, you listen to a 30-minute sermon. It's very much about you learn why you believe and the investigations in, you know, in terms of manuscript studies or learning about the Bible are very similar to the curiosity and the exploratory nature that drives science. So it wasn't actually until I arrived in the States that I met anyone who had a serious problem with an aspect of science who shared my faith. I had never met anyone who thought that the world was 6,000 years old. I knew people existed, but I hadn't actually met anybody in person. And I definitely had never met anybody who said climate change wasn't real until I got to the U.S. And in fact, I was so naive about that, that my husband and I, we met in graduate InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. My husband and I had been married for a number of months before we figured out we were on the opposite side of the fence on this issue. Because for me growing up, the grass is green, the sky is blue, and climate is changing due to human activities. You don't ask people what color you think the sky is. You just assume any right-thinking human obviously knows that it's blue. So for me, I rapidly discovered, however, that in the Christian community, the vast majority of us, it's estimated about two-thirds of us who would self-identify as evangelical in the United States, don't agree with a lot of the science. And they don't agree with it because they've been told it isn't true. Yeah. So for me, where I really felt like I was coming out of the closet, and I use that term, I don't use it lightly. I felt like I would be flushing my scientific reputation down the toilet when I finally decided with my husband, after many years of conversations, that we should write a book together explaining to Christians why climate change is real. I was worried that my scientific colleagues would be the ones who would judge and criticize me for that. And I have to say, I was completely wrong. Absolutely, 100% wrong. I have received so much support from my colleagues, some of whom say, I don't share your faith, but I absolutely support what you're doing. And even more who say, I do share your faith. How could I start talking to people about what I believe? Whereas in contrast, I would say well over half of the hate that I receive every day, and literally it is every day. I mean, sometimes it's one or two people. Other times, like yesterday, it was more like about 20 or 30 over half of those people are people who self-identify themselves as Christians. And that just breaks my heart. Yeah, mine too. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, we do spend some time in this podcast talking about mastery and what mastery looks like across a variety of crafts, whether you're a climate scientist or a politician or an entrepreneur or whatever it might be. You're one of the first scientists we've had on the show. So I'm really curious to hear your perspective on what world-class scientists do that they're less masterful counterparts don't do, right? So in your profession of science and academia, what's the delta between good and great? Well, I think that there's many examples that have gone before who illustrate this. And the first step to being a scientist is being able to understand and recognize the incredible complexity of the systems we work with, whether it's the human body, whether it's this planet, whether it's the universe, seeing the weeds, identifying each weed, understanding how each weed is separate from the weed beside it. That is the first step to being a scientist. The difference between being a scientist and having mastery in your field is the ability to see the forest. When you can take incredibly complex issues and simplify them without significant loss of accuracy so that the average person could understand it. So you could explain a quasar to your grandmother or you explain global warming to a five-year-old. 
I think that's the second and frankly more challenging step because you have to have mastered the complexity before you're able to accurately simplify the concepts. Yeah. So mastering the complexity or or the basics of the craft, right? Like that's the baseline competency of just being a, you know, an adequate scientist, but real masters are able to make those creative connections. And I mean, like we started the conversation, teach climate change to a five-year-old, right? That yeah. That's where master comes in, being able to really teach it. All right. So I'm really curious. You have a lot going on in your life. You have your research, you have your successful consulting practice, you're teaching, you're a mom, you're a pastor's wife. Let's talk about your routines that kind of make it all work. So really practically, what does a typical day look like for you from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? Well, any of those can and often is a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, prioritization and time management is really important. I live by my calendar. And on my calendar, I don't only have my commitments, I have my other priorities scheduled in. So actually scheduling in, you know, I'm not available during this time because this is family time. And I schedule in days well ahead of time where we're going to be taking this day off to have a long weekend. So making sure that my priorities are in line with my commitments, because otherwise, if I don't think ahead and plan out the times that are really important to me, and those could include times to just sit and think and reflect, times to read, times to do research, as well as times to spend with, you know, friends and family and the people we love then you end up looking back on your life and you've spent your life on most of the things that will not be written on your tombstone. As academics, we're often obsessed with our publications and our research grants and our citations, but when you die and when they write your obituary, none of that information goes into it. What goes into it is the impact that you have had on your community and on the world. And what goes into you know, the personal obituary is your relationships your friends, your family, your loved one. And that's what really counts when it all comes down to it. So you're channeling, you know, Stephen Covey, don't prioritize your schedule, schedule your priorities. So for you, really practically day to day, what does that look like? Like, do you have a daily shutdown process at the end of the day where you're planning out, you know, here are the three things I want to get done the next day? How far out do you plan your schedule? Can you talk through some of that more practical stuff? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I plan my day-to-day, my hourly schedule about two weeks in advance, and that's simply due to the volume of requests that I get. And then I plan my travel schedule or my larger commitments that would take a full day or more. I plan those typically, um, it used to be six to eight months in advance, but now it's more like 12 to 18 months in advance. And again, that's simply reflective of the vast majority of requests I receive, and it helps me to prioritize if I'm able to group them together. So for example, as a climate scientist, I'm very conscious of the fact that the biggest part of my carbon footprint, the amount of carbon I produce personally, is due to flying to scientific meetings and conferences and to give talks about climate change. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the irony. (laughs) Exactly. Not to mention the fact that our time is the most non-renewable resource we have. And traveling somewhere to give a one-hour talk takes orders of magnitude more time than it would be if you gave it virtually. So about five years ago, I sat down and I realized I was spending a disproportionate amount of my time traveling to and from places, and I was spending the biggest amount of my carbon doing so too. So at the same time, I was contacted by a guy called Brian Webb, who is the sustainability coordinator for Houghton College, a small Wesleyan college in upstate New York. He was finishing his master's degree at the Harvard Extension Program, and he said, I would like you to come speak. And I said, well, you know, I'm actually trying to cut down on that. And he said, no, no, no. I want to run an experiment. I want to see if speaking to evangelical college students really makes a difference. I want to run an experiment where I ask them questions before, then they go to your talk, and I ask them their opinion afterwards, and I see if it's changed. So 
I said, well, could we add something to this? When the students show up for the talk, could we divide them randomly into two groups where one group goes and watches a video of me talking? Interesting. Yes. Whereas the other group sees me live. And he said, absolutely. So we did that. And here's what we found. He asked the students over 30 questions. So it was a very detailed survey. And number one, he found a statistically significant difference in over, let's see, I think all but two or three of the questions between before and after both talks. So obviously, actually talking was effective. And that was good because if it wasn't effective, I was going to quit. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. hoping you were going to say there was yeah. no difference. Yeah. So I could stop traveling. Yeah. Right, right. I was I was sort of hoping that because again, if our time is the most non-renewable resource yeah. we have, you don't want to be doing something that isn't effective. But then he did not find any statistically significant difference between the video versus the live talk. Wow. Yeah. So I said, all right, I'm totally changing how I do this. I've worked consciously over time to transition 80% of the talks I give to virtual talks. I now am able to give double the talks for a tenth the amount of my time investment. I do an online class, which I had already started before the pandemic hit, thank goodness. And when I travel, and here comes the planning part of it, when I travel, I only travel to a location when I have multiple events to do in the same location. Yeah. I started off doing- matching. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you have to plan so far ahead of time because you can't line up five different requests in Washington, D.C., you know, with three months lead notice. I love this, right? So I'm spending my time uh, as an author. I'm writing books for for Penguin Random House right now. And, you know, it's kind of just conventional wisdom that you're going to travel all the time and speak. And it's something I've really been questioning lately, mm -hmm. right? I, and listen, I think speaking live is important, but I have questioned, do you really have to be there in person? It's so terribly inefficient, right? And I enjoy it. I love it. There's something different about speaking to a live audience that you can't get virtually. But I, I love this. You're giving us data to deal with to make these decisions. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about the meat of this conversation, faith and work. So here's what I love about you. From the outside looking, you don't appear just to be a Christian who happens to be a climate scientist. I think you said somewhere that you are a climate scientist precisely because you are a Christian. Your faith drives you in your pursuit of mastery of this field. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Well, first of all, when I first started studying science, I viewed it very much as studying God's creation. A theologian might study God's written word, and I was studying God's expressed word. I was planning, though, to be an astrophysicist because I still think it's absolutely amazing that with our brains and nothing more than we can create on this planet, we can study the furthest reaches of the universe. My dad often referred to the universe as God's art gallery. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. you're not only under you're seeing it, you're understanding how God set it all up. And when you make one of those aha moment discoveries, the beauty and simplicity of the physical relationships that hold this universe together, it is an awe-inspiring and really worshipful experience. So in and of itself, studying science can be an incredibly spiritual experience. But I was almost finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto in astrophysics when I needed an extra class to finish my degree. And I'd already taken a minor in Spanish because I grew up as a missionary kid in South America, and I'd already taken, you know, children's literature and the classes that we all take to fill the cracks in our schedule. But I looked over in the geography department and there was this brand new class on climate science that had just started this year. And so I thought, well, if that looks interesting. Why not take it? And I took it very much with the attitude of, 
we have these environmental issues like deforestation, biodiversity loss, air and water pollution, and climate change. And people who are environmentalists care about these issues and try to fix them. And the rest of us wish them well. You know, that's what they do. And I certainly wish them well, but I really didn't see it as any of my business or my concern. So I took this class and I was completely shocked. First of all, I was shocked to learn that climate science is the exact same physics I've been learning in my astrophysics classes. I don't know what I thought it was, but I didn't think it was that. And then, and this is what really changed the trajectory of my entire life, I learned that climate change is not only what we would consider an environmental issue. Climate change is an everything issue. Climate change is, as the U.S. military now calls it, a threat multiplier. So it takes the concerns we already have today and it multiplies them or makes them worse. And the biggest concerns that we have today regarding poverty, hunger, disease, lack of access to water, resources, political instability, civil conflict, even refugee crises, all of the issues that I had seen firsthand affecting people who I knew and loved growing up in a developing country, climate change was making those worse. And even worse is the fact that those people, the poorest and most vulnerable in the world, have done the least to actually contribute to the problem. It is the most unfair thing you can imagine. So as a Christian, I couldn't not do what I could. I felt absolutely compelled to offer the skills and the resources I had, because I thought naively at that time, it's such a huge problem. Surely we'll fix it soon. And then I can go back to astrophysics, but we have to fix it because it just isn't fair. And how can we be loving our neighbor, loving our sisters and our brothers as ourselves? How can we be saying that we do that if we're not trying to fix this massive global issue that is making everything they already suffer from worse? Amen. And I'm so glad you went here without me having to ask, because when I heard you talk about this for the first time, this is a big deal. And here's the deal on the surface, right? Hunger, poverty, lack of access to clean water, injustice, refugee crises. All Christians agree that these are issues that Jesus would have us address and redeem and engage and alleviate in our culture. And so while evangelical Christians are disproportionately likely to not believe the claims of climate scientists, I think we can all agree that these problems need to be solved. Can you give an example, though, of how this happens? So take one of those big humanitarian problems, draw a line between climate change and how climate change is this threat multiplier for one of those issues that I think all Christians would agree we care about. Mm -hmm. I absolutely can do that. But first, let me just really confirm what you just said. So often we feel like to care about climate change, we have to be a certain type of person. So we have to be an environmentalist or a liberal or a tree hugger. You have to be a registered Democrat, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely that. But the reality is that who we already are is already the perfect person to care. We as Christians are already equipped with every value we need to care. And not just every value. We have the love of God poured out in our heart. That's what we believe. So if we truly take the Bible seriously, if we truly act out of our new heart that we've been given, we are at the front of the line demanding action on this issue because it affects everything that we already care about from the responsibility that God has given us over every living thing on this planet that he talks about in Genesis 1, chapter 1, to our care for our brothers and sisters around the world and right here in the places where we live today. So let me give you a couple of examples, starting big picture and then getting down to specifics. Big picture, since the 1960s, 
the impacts of a changing climate on food scarcity, on increased risk of floodings and stronger droughts, it has led to about $5 billion worth of crop losses every year, the majority of those in poor countries. And it has increased the economic gap between the richest and the poorest countries already by as much as 25%. Wow. That's the 30,000 foot view. Let's bring this home. In many places in the world, which are primarily agricultural, like many places in Africa, the agricultural season is very governed by here's the rainy season, here's the dry season. And the traditional knowledge handed down over generations is here are the signs you look for when you plant and when you harvest. Well, what's happening is the traditional timing of the seasons is being completely disrupted. We're seeing longer and stronger dry periods. And then when the rains come, they come in heavy downpours that don't sink into the soil. They just wash away and they flood the crops. And so a lot of traditional knowledge, whether it's in Africa in terms of growing maize or whether it's up in the Arctic with Native American peoples up there in terms of what animals to hunt, where and when and how, their traditional knowledge is becoming not only unhelpful to them, in some cases actually dangerous because things are changing so quickly. And those are the people who live off the resources of the land. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have insurance. They don't have the National Guard. All they have is what they can grow and what they can catch. But then bringing it home to the cities where we live, a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a talk at a fundraising banquet for a woman and children's shelter in Halifax, which is a city in Canada in the Maritimes. And they dealt primarily with women and children who had become homeless due to various traumas. And during the day, the executive director took me around to the various homes and shelters they run and, and talked to some of the people. And it became very obvious that as heavy rainfall increases, as flooding increases, as the heat waves, even in Canada, we have heat waves, as the summer heat waves get more dangerous, as the storms that come all the way up the coast, hurricanes do come all the way up to Canada, but as those hurricanes get stronger and more damaging, who are the people who are most vulnerable? It's right. the people who live on the street. Right. And after people who live on the street, it's the people who live in a shelter who don't have personal transportation, who have to rely on public transportation that gets shut down during a flooding or a storm, who if you miss one mental health appointment, you tend to, it's very common for you to just kind of fall off the, off the wagon because you need that continuity to keep going or they can't make it to their job. They lose the money that they needed to pay their bills. They get evicted. There's this horrible snowball that happens even right here in our very cities, let alone on the other side of the world. And climate change is not initiating these problems. It is taking a problem that already exists and it is magnifying it or making it worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, this is serious stuff. So I watched your TED talk a while back, which is, as you know, wildly popular, something like 3 million views, something like that, which is terrific. And then I found your YouTube show, which I loved even more. So it's called Global Weirding. For those of you guys listening, Global Weirding, Climate, Politics, and Religion. And there was this one video that stood out to me. You were talking about how polling shows pretty consistently that white evangelicals are the least likely like literally at the bottom of the polling data to believe in climate change or that humans have anything to do with this. Why is that? Well, when you tease that apart, it turns out that it has nothing to do with where we go to church. In fact, sadly, half of the people who self-identified as evangelicals in the last U.S. federal election, when they were queried further, it turns out they don't even go to church at all. Right, right. 
Yes. So evangelical in the United States has very much become more of a political label than a theological label. In fact, I often try to differentiate between the two. I once asked uh, Leith Anderson, who was the former president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a pastor from Minnesota, I asked Leith, how would you define an evangelical? And he gave me a wonderful definition for a theological evangelical. A theological evangelical is, as he said, someone who takes the Bible seriously. I love that. But then we have seen the rise, and this hasn't happened overnight. It's happened over decades. We've seen the rise of political evangelicals whose statement of faith is dictated first by their politics and only a distant second by what the Bible actually says. And if the two come into conflict, sadly, a lot of times they'll go with what the politics say over what the Bible says. And we've really seen this, I think, thrown into great relief in in recent years where positions that are radically opposite to anything you could see in the Gospels or the New Testaments are advocated for people somehow in the name of Christ. So when they dig into why would somebody who calls himself an evangelical in the U.S., and this is a very U.S.-centric phenomenon, I have to emphasize, why would they say that? It turns out it has nothing to do with where we do or don't go to church. It has everything to do with our affiliation with the right-hand side of the political spectrum. But a thermometer doesn't give you a different number if you're Democrat or Republican. Climate is changing. We have checked. It isn't volcanoes. It is not solar cycles. It is not natural cycles. It really is humans. And the impacts are serious because they affect every single one of us, no matter how we vote, although they do affect the poorest and most vulnerable more than they do the, the wealthy. So there's nothing political about those statements. So how did this become so political? It's because of the fourth. So number one, it's happening. Number two, it's us. Number three, it's serious. What's number four? We should do something about it. That's number four. That's where it gets political. And that's where it should get political because there is no one perfect solution. We need solutions from across the political spectrum. But unfortunately, a large group of industry and then politicians and then by extension, those of us who adhere to a certain part of the political spectrum, we've decided that it's just easier to say it's not real than to say it's real, but we have to fix it. Right. And there's a big difference between those two philosophies. So we talked about hurricanes. We've talked about increased hunger amongst the poorest people. I mean, isn't climate change a pro-life issue? Do you view it as that? Oh, absolutely. 100%. And in fact, the Evangelical Environmental Network, which if you haven't heard of, please look them up. Their president, a pastor named Mitch Hescox, is really wonderful at emphasizing the links between fossil fuel extraction. He grew up in the coal mining area in Pennsylvania, and he used to work in the coal industry himself. And the fact that taking the tops off mountains massively pollutes the waters. It affects the unborn. It affects children. It affects maternal health. And then when you burn the fossil fuels, it produces air pollution, which get this, air pollution kills 200,000 people in the United States every year, disproportionately the youngest, the oldest, and the people who don't have access to quality health care, so the poorest and most vulnerable. And then you've got a changing climate, which disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable, especially women and children. You put it all together, and there is no doubt that climate change is a pro-life issue. And so again, getting back to what we're talking about, Jordan, Caring about and acting on climate change is not something we do despite the fact that we're a Christian or even because we're a Christian. It's something that actually enables us to more fully express who we truly are. If we're pro-life, it enables us to be even more pro-life than we Mm. were before. Yeah. So I'm as 
pro-life as they come, as that term is traditionally defined. But I have started to scratch my head over the last few years, and especially, frankly, in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis, over how narrowly pro-life is defined, right? It, you know, speaking of this current moment, this COVID-19 crisis, you know, based on what we're seeing in polling, the people who are most staunchly pro-life are also the people least likely to listen to scientists at the CDC about what we need to do to protect the lives of others, especially the most vulnerable in our communities, right? Yes. Like, are you reading the situation the same way? And if so, I mean, these are the same things, right? It's the same issues here, right? You are 100% correct. I am so frustrated by the fact that pro-life seems to mean I care about life from conception until birth, but then after birth, you're on your own, suckers. I mean, I'm sorry to be a bit extreme there, but that's actually what it seems like sometimes. And I would say I'm pro-life in the true sense of it is I'm pro-life. And that doesn't mean life from conception to birth. It means life from conception to death. And especially when it's the poorest and most vulnerable people who are affected by all of these different issues, which climate change multiplies, how can we even call ourselves pro-life hmm. if we don't yeah. care about those two? So your pastor's wife, I'm sure, I'm certain, I don't even have to ask you to know, I'm certain you've heard people in the church say something to the effect of, okay, Catherine, fine. You win. You're the scientist. I'll concede that climate change is real, but who cares, right? And we talked about part of the reason why we care, right? Because it affects all these other issues. But yeah, I've heard people say this before. You know, the Bible says the world's going to burn up at the end anyway. So why care? Why do anything? Mm -hmm. I, I'm really eager to tee you up to respond to that line of thinking. So go ahead. How how would you address that line of thinking? Well, from a biblical perspective, the interesting thing is that we do have a global weirding episode that addresses this argument. The world's going to end anyway, so why do we care? And Global Weirding is a PBS show, but they were very open as to doing any topic I wanted. So I said, well, I would love to do just one video on what does the Bible say about climate change because of all these questions I get. You know, if the world's going to end anyways, why does it matter? Are you saying that God is not in control anymore? If we <laughs> humans could affect the planet, God said that he would never flood the earth again. He promised Noah. So how can you say sea level's rising? God said there will always be seasons. So how can you say the planet is warming? So I made this one episode, what does the Bible say about climate change, more for my own satisfaction and to provide yeah, yeah. you, you know, people who ask those questions. And guess what? It is head and shoulders far and away the most watched episode of the entire show. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was, but not anymore. So how would I address that in that show? Well, as a Christian, I would say, yes, the Bible says that the world will eventually pass away. In, in fact, as a scientist, we also know that's true because eventually as our sun evolves, it won't support life on earth anymore. But the Bible speaks very clearly in Thessalonians, for example, to people who are saying, oh, well, Christ is returning any day now. So it really doesn't matter what we do. We'll just quit our jobs and lay around and gobble up all the food when we come together and not leave any for the poor people who come too late. And Paul writes to people and he says very sternly, he says, you know, care for the poor, care for the people, care for the, the widows and the orphans. You don't know when the day or the time is. And in the meantime, we've got things to do. So there's no excuse in the Bible for just sitting back in the lazy boy, putting our feet up and waiting for the eject button to be pushed. And oh, by the way, Scripture also makes clear that Revelation 21 in particular, that there's coming a day where there will be a new earth, right? That Christ will eventually 
redeem all things. It's why I talk so much about heaven on this podcast, because I, I think the church's theology of heaven, frankly, is more influenced by culture than it is scripture, right? Mm-hmm. And Randy Alcorn does a great job talking about this in his, his book, Heaven, you know, the difference between the present heaven and the future heaven on the new earth. And a lot of theologians believe this is going to mean a fully redeemed, basically second earth with the restoration of the one we are working to redeem today. That's got to influence how you approach your work today, right? You're fighting against this massive problem, but in the end, there's this biblical promise of a new earth. I'm curious how that drives you in your work right now. Well, the messaging is very different depending on whether you're speaking to people who believe that the earth will ultimately be redeemed and it's our job to do that versus if you're talking to people who think the earth will ultimately be destroyed and rebuilt as God's agency rather than ours. What do you believe? I'm not out to argue with people in that theology because no matter what we believe, what happens today still matters. Amen. So the message of stewardship, of caring for creation, which of course includes us humans, not just animals and plants, we're part of creation too. The message of stewardship often resonates if we believe that we are to be engaged, we have agency in restoring the earth. And then in terms of if you feel the earth will ultimately be destroyed, those are the people Paul was writing to in Thessalonians, basically saying, get a job, take care of people, you've got stuff to do. Don't worry about when the day or the time is, that's something that God's going to take care of. Right now, we are called to walk in the good works that have been prepared for us in advance. And those good works, again, do not consist of putting your feet up in the lazy boy and waiting for God to push the eject button for you. But moving on from that, though, people might still say, okay, but why should I care because you're talking about these poor people that I don't even know. Well, no, often they're the people right in the city where you live are the people who are most affected by these issues. When there's a heat wave, they can't pay their air conditioning bill. You know, if they are a farmer or producer, then and a flood or a drought comes, they don't have adequate insurance or money in the bank to cover themselves. If they're living on the street, they are disproportionately affected by all of the, again, heavier rain, more intense heat that comes. But when we're talking about climate change, often people perceive it again to be an environmentalist issue. So if you care about polar bears, if you care about trees, then you care about climate change. But if I don't care about polar bears or trees, I don't care about climate change. In fact, I am really convinced that over 99% of us, in fact, probably 99.9% of us, we already have all of the other values we need to care in addition to being a Christian too. Because I have yet to discover anyone that I've been able to have a conversation with that doesn't care about something that's affected by climate change, whether that something is hunting or fishing, whether it's their kids and their kids' health, whether it's having a healthy economy, whether it's having local jobs, whether it's national security, whether it's the quality of the food that we eat or the quality of the air that we breathe, whether it's our health. You and I are talking in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and I think the pandemic has really showed us in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes that when it all comes down to it, when, you know, all the chips are on the table, it does not matter who we are, where we live, what language we speak, what country we're from, what part of the political spectrum we identify with. When it all comes down to it, the same thing matters to all of us. It's the health and the safety of our family, our loved ones, our friends, our community, the area where we live, the region we live, the state, the country. That's what matters to every single one of us. That is what the pandemic threatened. And that is exactly what climate change threatens too. So it isn't a case of trying to instill new values into people, which comes with a hefty side of judgment 
the undertone of you don't have the right values. So let me instruct you. That always goes over <laughs> like a ton of bricks. Right. It's a case of respecting the fact that people already have all of the right values, but they just haven't connected the dots. Yeah. And if we can connect the dots, we're actually helping that person be a truer and more genuine expression of who they already are and who God has made them. So speaking of connecting the dots, you have connected the dots between your faith and your work as a climate scientist in a very public way, right? But you didn't have to do that. You could have very easily engaged in your work as a climate scientist and been a Christian and had that influence your work in a private way, but you've chosen to make those dots connected publicly. Why have you done that? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And many of my colleagues have chosen the latter. In fact, people often have the stereotype as all scientists are, you know, liberal atheists. But it turns out that thanks to the work of Elaine Eklund, who's a social scientist at Rice University, who I highly recommend having on your podcast. Yeah, okay. Thanks to Elaine's work, she has surveyed over 1,600 scientists at top research universities across the U.S. And she's found that 70% of us are spiritual people. In other words, that we believe there is more to life than what science science can observe, 50% of us identify with a specific religious tradition. We would say, I am Hindu, I am Jewish, I am Christian, and Christian being the, the largest category in the United States. And my own experience has borne that out. I have met everyone from graduate students to the most accomplished professors in my field who are Christians, but they've been living out their faith through doing good science, through the directions that they decided to pursue, the questions they decided to ask, why they matter to people. One of the giants in our field, a man called Sir John Houghton, just passed away a few weeks ago from COVID-19. He was already retired. He was 88 years old, but he had led the formation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He had been involved in climate science and climate action for decades, and he was very outspoken about the fact that he did it, not despite of, but because of his Christian faith, because climate change affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. So for a long time, I was like other scientists for about 10 years, you know, doing my science and asking the questions I was asking because I was concerned about how people were being affected. But increasingly, here's what happened. So my husband's a pastor. And as people in the church started to figure out what his wife did, they didn't want to be rude. They didn't want to come up to the pastor's <laughs> wife and say, how could you be setting right, something, right, right. you know, 10 rungs lower on the credibility ladder than oh, astrology, yeah. <laughs> you know? So they would ask him, they would come to him and they would say, well, if you don't mind me asking, why (laughs) do you think that climate is changing or that it isn't just volcanoes that are doing it? Or, you know, don't you know it's been warmer before or won't fixing climate change require a complete socialist takeover of the government? And he would come home to me and we would talk about it and we would try to find resources we could give people. But the more we looked, the more we realized that there weren't very many resources. There was a lot of stuff written for people who already assumed, yes, it's all real. You know, let's just learn more about the science or talk about solutions. But we couldn't find hardly anything at that time, more than 10 years ago now, whether it was a website, a series of videos, book, documentary, we really couldn't find anything that would meet people where they were at that would say, yes, that's a really good question. How do we know it's even happening? Let's look at that. Instead of just kind of saying, oh, how dare you ask that question? And a lot of people felt like that was the response they often got. So after a couple of years of this, we finally decided, you know, we should really write a book together where my husband outlines the book, all of the questions that we need to address. And then I write in the responses um, and he makes sure that they actually, you know, make sense because then we would have something to give people. And so that was the moment at which I decided 
I had to tell people I was a Christian because I'd be writing this book. And well, really a big part of the reason why we felt we could do this was not just because I was a scientist, but because I was also a Christian too. And so it's the why and why changes everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That was a watershed moment for me though, because that was when I was scared about, you know, what will my colleagues think? Turns out I'm one of those evangelicals. What will they think about that? And I was, I was really worried that I'd be flushing my career down the toilet at that point. And I am delighted 10 years later now to say that I could not have been more wrong and that I completely, completely misjudged the scientific community as a whole and my colleagues in particular. I love that. Hey, Dr. Hayo, three questions I love to end every conversation with. Number one, which books do you recommend or gift most frequently to others? Could be on any topic, faith, work, business, science, whatever. Well, I love to read and I have huge bookshelves. And so there's not one book that I tend to give to people in general, just because it really depends on what that person is interested in. But a book that I'm reading right now is called The Evangelicals. And I have to say, it's a very dense book. It's not easy to read. It's not written in a way that's very accessible to a non-expert historian. But The Evangelicals tracks the history of religion in America specifically. And most of all, it tracks the fact that politics and religion have been in bed together since day one. And politics and culture and the social pressures of the day have rewritten our theological statement more times than you can possibly count. And what it does is it really opens our eyes to how many things we take for granted as a core part of what we believe that actually came into being just in some cases decades ago. In other cases, maybe a hundred years ago. And they came into place because of the response of the United States to, you know, this World War One rather than any fundamental problem with evolution in the beginning. Who would you most like to hear talk about how their faith influences their work, maybe on this podcast? I highly recommend that you invite Elaine Eklund if you haven't already. Yeah. Okay. I haven't yet, but I'm gonna put her on the list. She sounds amazing. Because I'll tell you a very short story about her. She is a a sociologist who studies people. That's what sociologists do. And she was still in the early parts of her career when she was in church one day. She goes to a Presbyterian church. And during the time in the service when you stand up and you chat to people around you and shake their hands, in the course of a conversation, the woman beside her said, well, you know those scientists, they're all godless liberal atheists. (laughs) And Elaine thought to herself, I wonder if that's true. And so that's where her whole research program started. That's fascinating. I love that. Great time and the service of the church. That's really funny. And Presbyterian Church. I love it. Yeah. All right. So Dr. Hale, we haven't talked a ton about Master of Craft. We talked a little bit about it, but this is a group of people that you're speaking to who love Jesus and out of a deep love for him and care to love their neighbor as themselves, they want to do great work, whether they're scientists or entrepreneurs or artists. What one piece of advice would you leave them with as they seek to do their best work for the glory of God and the good of others? There are so many books that tell us to have a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, that tell us to have you know three priorities or 10 priorities, that tell <laughs> us how to structure our life, how to plan for the future. But the reality is we can only live in the present. And Jesus talks quite a bit about not living in the past or not living in the future, but living in the present. And so the biggest thing that I have discovered is that every plan that I had of what I could possibly achieve Most of those never came true. And in fact, I've achieved things that I never even dreamed of achieving. And it happened not by making one-year, five-year, 10-year, 20-year goals. It happened by doing one simple thing, which is taking one step forward. 
in, again, the good works that I know that God has designed for each of us to do. I didn't know where that one step would lead. Often I've taken a step forward in a direction that colleagues I respect have advised against or questioned or thought, why on earth would you be doing that or moving there or engaging in this? But each time, just one step forward, not even seeing the next step, and sometimes taking that step forward thinking, I don't really want to do this, but I feel compelled that this is what I should be doing. Even again, thinking, why am I doing this? (laughs) It doesn't even make rational sense per se. But that one step forward has led me to a completely and radically different and frankly, much better place than if I had been the master of my own ship, controlling my own destiny, laying out the path of my own life from the early days. In the words of Princess Anna from Frozen 2, just doing the next right thing. Right? Take it one step. One step That's at a time. Great way to end it. I like her much better than Elsa. There you go. Yeah. Me too. Me too. We should talk about that sometime. Hey, Dr. Hale, I just want to commend you for the important, God glorifying, eternally significant work that you do. Thank you for showing us that science and Christianity do not conflict. And thank you for your commitment to mastering your craft as a means of really practically being the hands and feet of Christ, redeeming every square inch of creation. Hey, if you guys want to connect with Dr. Hayhoe, it's pretty easy to find her at katherinehayhoe.com on YouTube, her TED Talk. We're going to have all those links right here in the show notes. Dr. Hayhoe, thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was terrific. We've been trying to get Dr. Hayhoe on the phone for sometime now. I'm so glad she was finally able to make it. Hey, thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of The Call to Mastery. I'll see you next time.